So we are in a series called United in Baptism. It's a series of studies on what baptism means and how it impacts those of us who aren't yet baptized and those of us who have been baptized. And one of the outcomes, as Mike said, one of the outcomes of this series is that we want all of you who haven't been baptized to consider being baptized on July 22nd at Mission Bay or in Mission Bay at Crown Point Plaza, um, or sorry, Crown Point Park, not Crown Point Plaza. Um, we hope that you will consider this as we look at the significance of what baptism is, and that you would participate in this if you haven't yet. Uh, baptism, it's a water ceremony that God instituted so that we would understand what God is doing in the world. And I am very serious about this. We all want to know what is God doing? We wish God would fix things. We wish God would do things in certain ways. And we wonder, God, where are you sometimes? Baptism is a clear declaration from heaven of what God is doing in the world. And it shows us, baptism also shows us how we can participate in what he's doing. And so last week we began the series and we saw from this ancient, I mean the whole Bible's ancient, but this goes way, way far back into the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And we saw that in Ezekiel 36, baptism means new heart and new start. That baptism makes things new. There's this ancient promise in Ezekiel 36 of what God would do through baptism. It talks about water and the spirit coming. Well, today we're going to see when God's promise in Ezekiel came true after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the book of Acts is in the New Testament and it talks about the early church. These are the people who followed Jesus after his death and resurrection. And we're going to look, this is one of these passages where I wanted to spend my time on chapter two, verses 36 to 39, these four verses. But as I read these verses and studied them, I thought we really need to look at the context. And so we're going to start at the beginning of the book of Acts in chapter one. We're going to start with verse two um, and we're going to walk through the story so that we can understand the message of these four verses that are in your bulletin. And so we're going to start Acts chapter 1, starting with verse 2. It says, To the apostles whom he, Jesus, had chosen, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Verse 4, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse eight says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so let's stop there just for a second. So Jesus is going to, his, to, um, to the, the apostles and he is telling them, okay, here's what I want you to do. Go to Jerusalem and wait. <laughs> Go to Jerusalem and wait. Now, there's an application point here for us. Sometimes we have promises from God and they aren't coming true yet. Sometimes God's message to us is, wait. I'm with you. I'm going to be with you, but I want you to wait. And so if you're in a place where 
you feel like you're in between the promise and the experience of the promise, you may not be doing it wrong. You might just be in a place where Jesus is asking you to wait. So he tells him to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit, which will come. And then Jesus gives them this incredible mission. Verse eight is this amazing mission that he's, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be the people that will take the good news of my death and my resurrection and all that it means to the ends of the earth. This incredible mission to go and to share the good news of Jesus. And then verse 9, it it continues. It says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. This is called the ascension of Jesus. He ascended into heaven, and as the creed says, he's seated at the right hand of God. So, verse 12, what do they do? They did it right. They actually did what Jesus said. Look at this, verse 12. It's kind of surprising because they don't always do this. Verse 12, and then they returned to Jerusalem. All right. Verse 13, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. So this is presumably the same upper room where they had the last supper with Jesus, where they observed the Passover. So they ended up back in that same place um, where they were staying. And who was it? Well, it's these folks, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. How many were there? Did you count? 11, right? Not 12, because Judas um, had rejected Jesus and betrayed him. So verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And so there they were praying and waiting. And about seven days later, God showed up. God showed up. And it starts, if you want to have a, there's a little bit of an outline today. If you want to write something down, it starts number one in the house. And this is the first four verses of Acts chapter 2. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So there was this sound of a mighty rushing wind. Like the air conditioning right now. Not quite, right? That's not mighty or rushing, but it's this general, like this, this like torrential hurricane kind of wind filled the house. It was loud. It was really, really loud, as we're going to see uh, in a little bit. Um, it was so loud that it was heard outside of what was going on in the house. Um, and the appearance of these tongues of fire rested on each one of them. So this was, this was an anointing on them by God. God came down from heaven and filled these people with his own presence. And wind and fire, these are images of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is invisible, but you feel the effects of it, kind of like the wind. Fire is also symbolic of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. The presence of God is a purifying presence. Um, The the fire is like a refining fire. 
Back then, they would purify metals, gold and silver, by putting them in fire and heating them up. And when gold is impure, the gold will heat up and liquefy, and the stuff that's not gold will burn off in the fire. The, the gold stays liquid, and then when that stuff burns off, what's left over after it cools is a more refined gold. It's a purifying gold. And God says that I will test you in the furnace of affliction. I will refine you as silver is refined. And so this is what the the spirit does. When God comes near, sin in our lives, evil in our lives, impurities in our lives are burned away. When you're in church, you have less of a desire to sin. Not just because of public shame, but because you feel closer to God. Right? There are things that you do that make you less likely to fall into temptation because you feel closer to God. That's what his presence with us does. And so people are purified and renewed by the spirit of God. They, they're, they're changed on the inside. And so these leaders were filled with his presence and they experienced God in the house and then they went out into the city. That's where, if this was a movie, the camera would shift from here in the house to going in the city. That's the second thing that we're going to see is, uh, is them in the city. This is Acts 2, verses 4 to 13. It says that they began to speak in other tongues, in verse 4, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, what does this mean? Because this idea of speaking in tongues, like this can mean a lot of different things in a lot of different churches, Right? Well, we don't have to wonder about this verse. The Bible talks about tongues in other places too, but in this verse, the rest of the text tells us exactly what this means, that they spoke in other tongues. Verse 5, it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. Right, So that rushing wind sound was so loud that people in the city of Jerusalem heard it and they came. This massive, enormous crowd began to gather. And this crowd, they, uh, verse 6 goes on, they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who speak who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language. Verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what? does this mean? They're looking at each other going, huh? Like, how is this possible? From 15 different geographical places across the known world, these people, they'd come to Jerusalem for the annual, this was the the annual Jewish feast of Pentecost, right? That's what verse one said. This was one of three times during the during the the year when everybody, when every Jewish person was supposed to come to Jerusalem and feast. They were supposed to come and have a massive national party, kind of like 4th of July coming up, right? They're all supposed to come together and feast at Pentecost. And as they came from all over the world, they were hearing these native Jews. They were Galileans, these native Jews um, 
And Galileans, they were, they were kind of like the backwater folks. They were sort of up in the north, and so there's a sense that the folks that are up in the north, they're away from Jerusalem, away from all the action where, the, where, where, where it's all happening. Up in the north, those are just like sort of the humble farmers. And so they, that's why they say, aren't these all Galileans, right? What, what's going on here? We know they're not educated folks, but these native Jews who live in the north, in the backwater, they are speaking in our tongues, we can understand them in our languages. And these 15 different, presumably that's just a, a sampled list. They were hearing these native Jews speaking in their own tongues and talking about the mighty works of God. And the question is, what exactly is going on? Now, there were some who were skeptical, right? There were some who mocked. Verse 13 says, but others mocking said, oh, I'll tell you what's going on. They're just, they're filled with new wine. These folks have had a little bit too much to drink. And, and you can kind of understand some of this because, um, well, first of all, in every group, there are some people you might know, some of these folks, no matter what happens, no matter how good it is, no matter how special it is, they always have something critical to say. Do you know any of these people? Are you one of these people? I, I mean, I am. There's, there's a part of me that in certain situations always wants to cast doubt, always wants to question, always wants to have like kind of a little bit of a dispersion, you know, just to, and it's, it's pretty awful sometimes. Like it's pretty deflating for people. Um, and so these folks came in and I could kind of understand where they're coming from, because this crowd is gathering and some people maybe were near folks. I mean, I don't exactly know how this works, but some people come and maybe they have ears to hear or they're receptive to what's going on and they immediately hear somebody talking in their language. And so they begin to listen and they're amazed going like, how in the world is this happening? And then there might've been other people who were walking up and what they were hearing was people speaking in lots of different languages. And sometimes if you don't know that it's another language, you might think that someone's just babbling, right? And so they conclude, oh, I know, they're just, they're just drunk, right? And so the skeptics among them are like, oh, they're just drunk. That's what's going on here. Nothing here to see, really. Um, well, Peter, as a representative of the apostles, he gets up and addresses everybody in their reactions. And he starts by addressing the skeptics in verse 15. He says, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Translated, that means, look, we're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. Come on. Like everybody knows you can't. I mean, you can, but we're not. So it's only 9 a.m. Come on, we're not those kind of people. Uh, and then what Peter goes on to say, he says, he says, look, here's what's happening. What's happening is that God's, God's promises are finally coming true. That's what he says. Um, he says, verse 17, and we, can't, we have to be selective here. I can't read all the verses and go into all of them. But he says, and in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. What does this mean? This means that God is going to give his spirit to everybody. To everybody. Not just to the prophets, 
who had the Spirit in the Old Testament, not just to the priests who had the Spirit in the Old Testament, not just to the kings who had the Spirit in the Old Testament, but to all flesh. In verse 21, he says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so Peter's saying, look, what's happening here is that God is doing something. God is doing something special. He's pouring out his spirit. He is giving his spirit to everyone who calls upon his name, who calls to be rescued, who calls to be saved from their sins, who calls to be saved from themselves. And so what's amazing here is that what started out in the house, this presence of God that was poured out in the house is now being offered in the city. They they, they went to share what they had received. It's offered to all. And Peter wants to make it clear. How can you call upon the name of the Lord? Verse 22 says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you. He was attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. I love this. I love this because Peter's making it really clear that he knows that they know that he knows that they know that Jesus was a miracle worker. Like everybody knew that Jesus did these amazing, mighty works and wonders and signs. Nobody denied that. Nobody doubted it. Nobody doubted that God was working through Jesus and that he did these works and wonders and signs. Like it was, there was no doubt that Jesus was this miracle worker. He came from God. Even his opponents didn't deny it when he was alive. Now, if you're like me, you may have said something like what I have said before. And that is, dang, I wish it were that way today, right? I I wish life was like this today. I wish we could see Jesus doing signs and wonders and and these mighty works and wonders and signs that God did. Like I wish, because if that were to happen, it would be so much easier to believe, wouldn't it? I mean, if only Jesus were doing these kinds of miraculous works today, then it would just be so much easier for us to believe. Well, I want to submit to you that Jesus actually is doing mighty works and wonders and signs today. That God continues to work. His spirit continues to bring about miraculous works and wonders and signs. And he's doing them here in our church family. And I'm going to jump to the end of where we're going with this message. But friends, baptism is the mighty work and wonder and sign that God is doing in our midst. Baptism, when water is poured out over people, God is doing a mighty work. There is a wonder and a sign because every baptism tells a story. Every baptism is a story of God working in the life of a man or a woman or a child. Every baptism is God declaring his name over someone. 
Every baptism is a story of someone's life who is being drenched by the presence of God. Every baptism gets to tell a story of someone, oftentimes, especially when they're adults who get baptized, of someone whose life is moving in a particular direction and then God enters into their lives and the direction of their life changes. Something happens. People love in ways that they never ever loved before. Addictions are broken. There are relationships that are repaired and reconciled. People begin to experience the presence of God and they never have before. There is a peace that overcomes and overwhelms people that they cannot find words to describe. These are miracles. These are mighty works of God. These are signs and wonders. And the baptism is a celebration of that changing story. When infants are baptized, and we're gonna, again, we're going to talk about this in these verses, but when infants are baptized, what we're seeing is a story of God who works through families. We're seeing a story of God who doesn't just work through the adults, but passes that faith on. The Spirit is passed on, and the children grow up in the Spirit. They grow up with God's presence as they grow up in relationship with Him. And so today... In this church family, friends, among us, God is doing mighty works. God is doing signs and wonders, and we need to testify. If you are part of our church and you are meaningfully connected to anybody in our church, then you know what God is doing here. You've heard some stories of what God is doing. And if you haven't, ask. Ask someone else in the church that you know in what ways has God worked in your life? In what ways have you seen the miracle of God's presence in you to change you, to make things different, to work in your life, to show you that he's real? And we become these attestations. We become those through whom God is testifying. That Jesus is, in his presence, in his name, like we become bearers and witnesses of what he is doing in our lives to the point where it's okay for you to say to somebody, I know that God is real because I have seen him at work in my life and I'm seeing him at work in the lives of the people here in my church family. Now, they might be skeptical. They might not believe you. They didn't believe Jesus either. Verse 23, it says, this Jesus, this Jesus, the one that was attested to you by God through these mighty works and miracles and wonders, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter is saying, look, you didn't doubt the miracles. You saw Jesus. You knew he was real, but you rejected him. You rejected him. And so Peter's calling them to acknowledge that they were complicit in Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion. And so you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, but God raised him up. God raised him from the dead, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Jesus to be held by it. So this phrase, loosing the pangs of death, this means that Jesus overcame death in all its forms. 
that death had this steel grip over humanity, that death and sin and brokenness characterized life and people could not get out. And that death, and I'm not just talking about physical death, you have to kind of realize that physical death is the culmination of destruction in life. Physical death is, is foretasted in all of the ways that we sin against God and against other people, in all of the ways that we do things that break down the fabric of society, that hurt relationships, that hurt our relationship with God or relationships with other people. All of those things are death. And Jesus on the cross experienced the punishment for all of that death. And Jesus was in the grave. He was in the grave under the power of death for a time, but he could not be held by it. He couldn't be held by it. Like death could not, it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. Why? Because Jesus never did anything worthy of death. For Jesus, like for the, uh, for Jesus to be in the grave was unjust. You want to talk about social injustice. For Jesus, the righteous one. For Jesus, the one who only always ever did what was perfectly righteous. For him to be suffering in death was radically unjust. It wasn't possible for death to hold on to him. And so as he burst forth from the tomb in his resurrection, he loosed the grip of death on humanity. I mean, he showed that there's another way. Jesus never, ever succumbed to the power of death. He never, ever succumbed to the power of sin. And so if you want freedom from sin, it comes from him. If you want to be set free from addiction or set free from bondage or set free from responding in a situation or to a person in the wrong way, if you want to be new inside, if you want new life to come forth from you, if you want love to fill your heart, if you want to have God's peace instead of the anxiety and the difficulties, then you get it from Jesus. It's in his resurrection that he broke the power of death. And he's come to set us free. Verse 32, it says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. I mean, it wasn't just that this guy flatlined on the, on the emergency room table and he came back to life. That's not what the resurrection of Jesus was. This is Jesus bursting forth from the grip of death so that he could show us that the way out of our death, that the way out of our slavery is through him and his resurrection. Peter's like, we are witnesses. We saw him alive. We saw him being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Man, the sounds, the tongues, this is Jesus pouring out the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit of heaven now invading the world. And it's coming to those who follow Jesus. It's coming to those who call on the name of the Lord. Verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain 
that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And again, Peter is honest here. He's honest. He's saying, look, you rejected Jesus. You lived apart from him. That's bad news for them. But sometimes there can be good news in the bad news. Because if the problems in our lives is that the world is jacked up, right? if the problems in our lives are that the people that we're closest to are broken and they hurt us, if the problems that are in our lives are out there, we are screwed. Because there's nothing that we can do about them. But if in any way we have contributed to the brokenness of the world, if there is any way that you have contributed to the brokenness of a relationship that is hurting you, there's something we can do about it. If there is in some way we're at fault, that's something we can fix. Verse 37, this is how they responded. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They heard the sound. They came and gathered. They saw God working through these people, through Peter and the others. And they wanted in on it. They heard that what was happening, what they were seeing, what they were observing was the presence of God poured out in, their, you know, in the lives of these people in front of them and they wanted in. Do you want in on this? Like, do you want the Holy Spirit? Do you want God's presence? Is this power still coming in the world? Is this power still changing lives? Yes. Yes, it is. How can you get it? How can you participate? How can you receive the Holy Spirit? That's the question they're asking in verse 36. That's what it means when they ask, what shall we do? Verses 38 and 39 give us, give us and them sort of the application of this passage. They give us and them exactly what they can do to participate in what God is doing in the world. So I'm going to read it and then we'll break it down. Verse 38 says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So the verses are in your bulletin we're going to hit application and walk through these two verses. And so this is what we can do right now and this week. First, repent. Repent, the first thing Peter says to them. Now, repent's kind of a religious term that can maybe get some people a little bit uncomfortable, feels a little bit self-righteous or condemning. Repent simply means turn the direction of your life to follow Jesus. Okay, repent means that you are living your life in some kind of direction, like you're living for something. You are valuing certain things in your life. Um, 
They don't all have to be bad things. Some things can be good things, but like in the good things, you could be valuing family. You could be valuing work. You could be valuing social justice. You could be valuing taking care of people in the community, right? On the bad side, you could be valuing pleasure. You could be valuing like laziness. You could be valuing your anger and bitterness. You could be valuing sex. You could be valuing a relationship, right? And whatever direction that your life is heading, in whatever direction you are walking, the word repent means if in any of the directions that you are walking, you are not walking toward Jesus, then turn the direction of your life and start following him. That's what repent means. It means to turn the direction of your life. And you'll find when you do this, when you do this, that you know what? There are some really wonderful things that go along with this. Jesus wants you to love him first and foremost. You know, so repent means put him first. He is Lord and Christ. That means he has the place of Caesar in the ancient Roman world. He is master and commander, right? He is Christ. He's the Jewish Messiah, right? And when you follow him, you put him first. He wants you to love your family. He wants you to work hard and do your work with excellence, Right? He wants you to have good community and friendships. He wants you to be in relationships with people. And so there are some things that you will be able to continue to do in ways that now honor him. And then there's a lot of things that we do that need to stop. There's a lot of relationships that we have. There's a lot of things that we have habits to doing that need to stop, that are not consistent, that are actually putting us in the opposite direction of following Jesus. And repent means turn. It means turn. Whatever Jesus says goes. And so some people are consciously against Jesus. Some people are just sort of doing their own thing. They're not against Jesus, but they're not for him. And in either way, you need to turn and walk consciously after Jesus. Um, And repentance it means that none of us are perfect. And that's good news for us. It means that when things get exposed in our lives that are not following Jesus, it means that we don't justify what we've done. It means we, are, we, we, we confess our failures and our sins. We confess there's something broken that's deep inside of us that's constantly generating new ways that we sin. It means owning that. And it means saying, look, I want to give this up. Repenting means turning to Jesus and saying, please forgive me for this. And so for us this week, for us today, repent and turn to follow Jesus. Second, Peter says, be baptized, every one of you. Baptism is uniting with Jesus. It's being identified with him and his death and resurrection. Now, Repentance and baptism, they go together in some ways, right? In some ways, they're two sides of the same coin. But um, baptism doesn't save you. We have to remember that, right? Baptism is a water ceremony that actually celebrates your salvation. Um, It's your repentance that includes your faith in Jesus, right? Repentance means stop living that way and follow Jesus, believing in him. So repentance actually saves you. But here's the deal. Baptism is God's response to your repentance and belief. 
or to your parents' repentance and belief. Listen, baptism is God's response. And so baptism gives you God's clear response to your repentance. Okay, stay with me here. I mean, this is really, really important. Do you ever wonder if God still loves you? I mean, after what, after what I just did, does God really love me? After what I just did again, does God still love me? Baptism is God declaring to you how he feels about you, no matter how you feel. Baptism is this objective reality in our lives, the water that you can touch, that you can feel, like it's real. And as real as the water is, that's how real your forgiveness is. In baptism, it's like your adoption certificate. When God doesn't feel like he's close, baptism preaches to you that he is. In baptism, God comes near and says, I forgive you. He says, look, I'm washing it away. I'm sending it far away. It will not stand between you and me anymore. I am with you now. I am in you. My spirit is in you. I am your father and you are my child. So it's forgiveness and presence that comes to us through baptism, that is communicated to us through baptism. It's a new heart and a new start. So if you haven't been baptized, get baptized. If you, need, if you have questions, use the connection card. Say, hey, I want to talk to somebody about getting baptized or I'm thinking about getting baptized. Let us know. Um, third, include your children. Verse 39 says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. I said this in the baptism itself. And if you, this, this is a question, not all churches agree with this. Not every church baptizes the children of believers. Um, we do because we believe the Bible tells us that it does. If that's a stumbling block for you, we'd love to talk to you. We've written a lot of things on this. Um, we know how to have civil dialogue on things that we disagree about theologically. And so if you want to know more about what we think about what the Bible teaches, we'd be thrilled to share it with you. Just ask, just ask. Um, and so, but God says to adults, if you commit to me, I commit to you and your children. From Genesis 17, that's actually what Peter is quoting here in verse 39. He's quoting the language of the Abrahamic covenant so that those, everyone who's there would know that in the new covenant, it's like the Abrahamic covenant, meaning that the sign of the covenant goes to believers and their children. So much more could be said about that. That's all I have time for. Um, so, Number four and last, turn toward Jesus this week. Turn toward Jesus this week. Whether you've been baptized or not, turn toward Jesus. Um, there's something in your life that isn't actually honoring to Jesus. And I want you this week to let it go and to do the things that, are, that fit with following Jesus. And I want you to do this because if you do this, even if it's in a small way, you are going to experience more of the presence of God in that area of your life. You will know that you are lining up and God is smiling over the decision that you're making, that you are filled with his love. And so do that. Taste and see this week that the Lord is good. And you'll experience him in that way. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for, for coming like this, for not leaving us, uh, gosh, to follow you on our own, but sending your own presence, your own spirit to fill our hearts. God, I pray for every person here that all of us would turn toward you, that we would let go of sin and rebellion, that we'd let go of the kinds of behaviors that we engage in in our relationships that don't please you, and we would follow you. God, work in our hearts and our lives. Draw folks who haven't been baptized to want to experience this ceremony, to hear from you and to receive from you this tangible sign of your spirit's presence and the forgiveness of their sins. Um, Strengthen all of us so that the grace and the love and the power that we receive from you, we'd be able to share with others. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.